I want to do a, a study tonight on the subject of the date of the writing of the book of Revelation because the date of its authorship has a lot to do with how you interpret and how you understand the book as a whole. And I have opted for a early date. The two dates that are generally given are around 96 A.D. John returned from Patmos and went to Ephesus where he had pastored and there continued his ministry up until he was 100 years old, which was around 100 A.D. because he was about the same age as Christ. And that he wrote the book of Revelation in 96 A.D. when he was exiled to Patmos under Domitian. Now that's a common view and is probably in some of your Bibles because your Bibles have notes that that are about 20 years old. Remember the notes aren't Scripture. Amen? Just remember that. What I say isn't Scripture either, but that's beside the point. (laughs) (laughs) So it doesn't give us the date in the Scriptures, but the other option is the 66 A.D. date. So you have a 96 or about 66, and you can have a, a, a year or two on either side of that. And what you do is you look at the what's the evidence for an early date or a late date. And I, that's what I want to give to you tonight. Because the momentum is swinging now, and then I would say the last 10 years, back to 66 A.D. Yes, sir? If it were 96, how old would John have been at that he would have been about a hundred, and uh, that's which is one of the problems. There's a story told by Irenaeus, an early church father around 200 A.D., that says John went back to Ephesus and pastored, and uh, a young backslider he saw him riding by, and he's on his horse, and he saw the guy driving by, and, and the guy saw him, knew it was his pastor, and took off galloping away. John galloped after him and chased him down, caught him, and brought him back to the church. And that was at 100 years of age. (laughs) That's if it's a 96 A.D. date. I don't think I could do that, and I'm uh, not even at the 60s. Anyway, the two areas you generally would look at would be the external evidence, that is evidence outside the Bible, and then the internal evidence within the Revelation, the book of Revelation itself. So we'll divide it like that. What is the evidence externally that is outside the Scripture? And it generally will be connected to a man that I just mentioned, his a church father who wrote about 180 A.D., and his name was Irenaeus. Now, usually... You can hear other quotes by church fathers, but they're usually older than Irenaeus. They'll go into about three or 400 A.D., and they quote Irenaeus. So Irenaeus seems to be the root, I-R-E-N-A-U-S. And here is the quote that most people give in which Irenaeus says, The vision, speaking about the book of Revelation, was had by John, which he saw near the end of life in the reign of Domitian. 
Now, the problem with that is, it, it seems clear, only that's a translation. And Irenaeus is, I think it's in Latin. It says, the vision was had by John, which he saw, and the translation is garbled. So it can be which he saw near the end of life, or which we saw near the end of his life. In other words, did John see the vision near the end of his life, or did Irenaeus see John near the end of his life? And you can go whichever way because it's a garbled translation. It's an 1,800-year-old document that wouldn't be too surprising. So that's up in the air. But what I was going to say was that most people will quote that, but they don't bring up that it can go either direction. And And so you almost neutralize Irenaeus as any kind of evidence for an early date or a late date. And then there is a book that I want to mention to you just in case somebody wants to pursue this and it's the best thing out right now. And I mean, it is, it is a hot seller. It is scholarly and it's by a man named Ken Gentry. He's a Presbyterian. It's called Before Jerusalem Fail. And he goes through the evidence for the early date. This is about 10-year-old book. To my knowledge, nobody has been able to answer it to this point. And almost every new commentary I pick up that will go with the early date, they quote Ken Gentry. So Ken Gentry has done the primary work on this subject. Another external evidence that sometimes they use is that there was a persecution under Domitian and it was his habit to exile his enemies. Now we know there's no debate about whether there was a persecution under Nero, but there was a tremendous persecution under Nero, but under Domitian, historically, Domitian did not really have a problem with Christians. Now here's what uh, J.B. Lightfoot says about persecution under Domitian. Early evidence in history, early evidence is lacking for any general religious persecution by Domitian. He did persecute, he did exile his enemies, but it was directed not against Christians or religion, but carefully selected political enemies. In other words, Domitian did persecute, but Domitian was not interested in religion. And he didn't care about Christianity. He didn't even know much about it. But Domitian, who ruled about 100 A.D., 96 to 100 A.D., had a lot of enemies. And so he killed a lot of people. But it it wasn't necessarily the Christian people. And the evidence that has been turned up for a persecution of Christians under Domitian is very slim. I think they can come up with maybe one person who died under Domitian. I read that last night, and I don't remember where I read it. One man named Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y, called Pliny the Elder. He wasn't a Christian, but he refers to Nero as the destroyer of the human race. Now, Nero... 
Now, he was quite a killer. Nero killed his own mother. One early historian named Apollonius says, uh, and Apollonius was a world traveler from Rome, and he comments on Nero by saying, in travels all over the world, India and Africa and Indonesia, I have known many wild beasts, but this beast, Nero, he's talking about, is unlike any I have ever known, for he only devours his own mother. Nero would dress up like an animal and take prisoners of war, both men and women, and rape them. Do you remember, those of you who are here Sunday night, I mentioned Papea, the Jewess that he married, that was his favorite, and she was pregnant, and he kicked her to death in her pregnancy. And when he killed his mother, by the way, that's almost a funny story, but, you know, I mean, killing somebody's not funny, but he put her out on a boat in the river near Rome and arranged for the boat to sink, not realizing she could swim, so she swam back to shore. <laughs> Much to his uh, consternation, so he then had a soldier take her off, and she begged for her life, but the soldier killed her. But anyway, she knew that Nero was the murderer. These are just little examples of the external evidence in history, in among, in quotes, Domitian never seemed to give forth the fear that Nero did. Nero was known worldwide. He was known as a bloodthirsty killer. He was known as a pervert. He was called a beast by his own people. And just as a point, you know how you can, uh, in Roman numerals, this is an I, but it's also a what? A one. Roman numerals, Roman numerals also stand for letters, and letters stand for numbers. Now, Rome was Latin, and when you put Nero Caesar into numbers, it's six, six, six which is three is the number for God, and six, man was made on the sixth day, and you can run that through Scripture, so you have a man whose number is six trying to be God, and that's the idea of the deifying of a man. I make my own decisions. I do my own thing. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm autonomous. That's humanism. That is 666, and you don't have to go into the future to know that 666 is real. That spirit of man as his own God is alive today. Remember how Satan lied to Adam and Eve? Go ahead and eat this fruit. God said don't do it, but you go ahead and do it. You will be as God. Elohim, God. That is the wearing of 666. Man, 6, making himself to be God, the number 3. In Revelation 17, and I have mentioned this, but when you look at the, at the 7 Kings, chapter 17, verse 10, 
there are seven kings or Caesars. Five have fallen, and we would take that to be Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius is mentioned in Luke chapter 2. Then there's Caligula, and there's Claudius. Actually, there may be, it may be Claudius, then Caligula. So five have fallen. Claudius is mentioned in Acts 17. One is. That would be the one who is alive when he was writing Revelation. So if Nero follows Claudius, then Nero is alive during the writing of Revelation. And Nero is the sixth emperor of Rome. Every historian all the way back to the Roman historians like Suetonius will tell you Nero was the number sixth emperor. So five have fallen, one is, that would be Nero. And then after Nero, civil war broke out and Galba, after Nero's suicide, Galba took over, but he only reigned about three months because there was such chaos in the city. And that's why it says, five have fallen, one is, the other is not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. Galba was only a Caesar for a little while. So the external evidence seems to fit an early date. Let me give you one other thing. Some people talk about the condition of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 and how that They're obviously second-generation churches, and some of them, like Laodicea, are already backslidden. They're lukewarm, and it's too far. That has to be like 100 A.D. because those churches are so far gone. Ephesus has left its first love. Laodicea is lukewarm. That would necessitate 100 A.D. rather than the 60s. But how long does it take a church to backslide? (laughs) Does it take 40 years This church could be lukewarm and spewed out of God's mouth in months. Look at 2 Timothy. Now, 2 Timothy is Paul's last epistle, the last epistle that he ever wrote. And look at what he says. Now, some of you have heard me do this, but my understanding of last days, last days of the Old Covenant, you have the Old Covenant... And the the last days of the Old Covenant are the days between the cross and the 70 A.D. destruction of Jerusalem. This is 40 years from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. It's 40 years, which is a biblical generation. That comprises the last days of which the Scriptures speak. Now, that's my understanding. Usually when it talks about our day or our last day, it's not days, plural, it's day. On the last day, there will be a resurrection, especially John. He talks about the last day, singular. Because it's not going to be a big, long, drawn-out affair. Jesus is coming. By the way, I want to let it be known that I do believe in the second coming. Jesus is coming. There will be a rapture or resurrection of the saints. But it's not going to be a big, long, drawn-out affair. The signs of the times fit right here. And you can see that, for example, in Mark 13, when the disciples said, when will the temple be destroyed? Jesus gave the signs so they'd know. So that all goes right in here. So I wouldn't be looking for signs 
for Jesus to come. I'd be looking for Jesus to come. So in the second Timothy, the last epistle that Paul wrote, it says in verse 1, Realize this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of selves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. And he goes on and, and gives this awful list of ungodly characteristics. Verse 5 says, And they will hold to a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Now notice, Paul says to Timothy, Avoid such men as these. Now evidently, Timothy was in those days because the people he's describing Timothy was to turn away from. That's in 2 Timothy 3, 5. Now, why would we put Timothy in the last days and say turn away from people who are going to be like that in the last days? Well, we would do it because the last days fit that last generation. And Timothy was to avoid becoming like them. And I bring that up because some people say that the seven churches of Revelation were just too backslidden to have an early date in the 60s. Oh, I think many of the churches were backslidden by the 50s. And Paul's still alive and he's saying difficult times are coming in the last days. And if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, since you're in the neighborhood there, verse 16 He says, at my first defense, no one stood by me, but all of them deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Nobody stood with me. When Paul went before Caesar, the Christians forsook him. They were already becoming a uh, backslidden people in many of those churches, which at one time had been on fire for God. So the condition of the churches doesn't really, I think, provide a great argument for a 96 A.D. date. All right, let's go to the internal evidence. And for that, turn over to Revelation 1.1. We'll look primarily at Revelation 1.1. The external evidence for an early 66 A.D. date is the church fathers do not, Irenaeus particularly does not deny it, especially if you challenge the translation of Irenaeus' statement. The persecution does not fit the Domitian date. The historians such as Pliny and Tacitus put the persecution under Nero and I think plug it in historically to his day. It fits the chapter 17 verse 10 outline of the kings and the last day scenario fits well with the 66 AD. So that's external evidence. Now let's go to internal evidence, that is, in the book itself. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show, deknui, that's a pretty big word, deknui, to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. And there's another big word. The internal evidence that Revelation is written in 66 A.D. is in this word soon, the Greek word being in tacos. 
the Greeks had a sense of humor. It's pretty much pronounced like a taco, only it's plural. This is the Greek phrase which is translated in the King James Version in verse 1 by shortly. And it's translated in the New American Standard by the word soon. Now, it is a word which, if you look at it in other contexts, it's pretty obvious what it means. For example, in Acts 12, 7, uh, the angel of the Lord came to Peter when Peter had been arrested and he was in jail cell. The angel of the Lord came and struck Peter's side and said, Get up in tacos. What does that mean? What did the angel mean when it gave that Greek word? In tacos, get up, Peter, quickly, immediately. He was sleeping. All right. Another place that it is used is when Peter himself uses it, and he has only a few months maybe to live, maybe weeks to live, and it's in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Knowing the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is near or in tacos, what did Peter mean by that? The Lord had showed him that he's going to be laying aside his outward tabernacle shortly. And he's going to do it when? Pretty quick. Could he wait 2,000 years? <laughs> Jamie. I hope I'm not getting ahead of you here, but I'm curious as to uh, the interpretation of the word soon in Revelation 22, verse 20. Same thing. He who testifies to these things, that he being Christ, says, Yes, I am coming soon. And it says, Amen. Come. Same word. I have a solution for it. And I am, actually I'm going to preach on the uh, Revelation 19 passage. Cause, and I'll give, I'll give you a, a, a brief injection of peace if you're in chaos over that. Jesus is the great I am. In fact, it says, I think it's in chapter 1, verse 8, He's the one who is, who was, and who shall be. We make a great mistake when we say he only comes in the future. I believe Revelation is about a coming king. He came. He comes now. He is coming. See, he's the one who is, that is, he comes now. When Iraq was overthrown, Jesus came. In a sense, in judgment... George Bush was Jesus. <laughs> well, do you understand what I'm saying? See, he's going to show Jesus on a white horse. Well, they looked up and saw Titus riding into town on a white horse with 80,000 Roman soldiers. He wants them to look at Titus and see Jesus. He wants them to look at Jerusalem and see a harlot. He wants them to look at the church and see a bride. See, he's revealing how God views it. Jesus is a coming king. He came, he does come, and he shall come. And, and don't you love that? Because doesn't that take the book out of the future and give it to us today? So we have the book today. It's not about them only. 
It's about them and us and them. All ages now can have the book of Revelation. I love that. I feel like I got my book back. By the way, that was in uh, the Alpha and Omega says the Lord God, the one who is and who was and is to come. Gavin? Yeah, God never said the Babylonians are coming. God always told them, I'm coming. Now, he would use the Babylonians, and Nebuchadnezzar is the face that God took on. But it was God who sent Nebuchadnezzar. And in that sense, sometimes it'll say the angel came, sometimes it'll say the Lord came. But he came through the angel. And there's a sense in which, you know, the pastors, the messengers in Revelation 2 and 3 are called what? The angels of the churches. And there's a change in the Old and New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, angels are messengers. In the New Covenant, men are messengers. But the point is God goes through an intermediary. So you cannot get away from the incredible accuracy and definition of this Greek word. Now, I know what the approaches are. Some will say, well, you know, with God every day is a thousand years. I understand that. With God, it's a thousand years or ten thousand years or ten billion years. But Jesus is not writing a letter to God. God is writing a letter to us. He's using our language. And when the angel told Peter to rise, he didn't mean, you know, but now, you know, it's uh, one day with the Lord is a thousand years, so take your time or do whatever you want to. You understand what I'm saying? He's communicating with us. And to me, that is just trying to wiggle around the absolute vitality of that word. Or one uh, approach, Jack Van Impey, for example, one of the few men who wrestles with the word in his little commentary on Revelation, he says it means suddenly, which it does, in a sense, mean suddenly, but there's a Greek word that that is translated suddenly, and in tacos ain't it. Like in Acts 2, the, the, the wind came suddenly, the spirit came suddenly. Well, that's a different Greek word. This word means quickly, time shortened, proximity of time. And I don't know how to get around it, guys. And it has led me to a different approach to Revelation. And by the way, I want to tell you this. Y'all think this is kind of strange interpretation of Revelation? Some of you maybe. This was the interpretation of Revelation until the 1900s. The last 100 years has departed from the norm. Now we're starting to get back to it because all the wild speculation did not come true. This interpretation has stood the test of time. Hal Lindsay's new on the scene. and He's on TV. But this approach to the book of Revelation, where you see it fulfilled in history with an application for us today and a future application also, where you have one fulfillment, many applications, ever-present coming one, that is an interpretation which stands the test of time. It was a, it's nearly 2,000 years old. My biggest complaint is that they take it away from today and they, take it, they unplug it from the history in which it happened and the events took place. I had one pastor that was in our association. He said, the book of Revelation isn't about us or it isn't about John's day. It's about 
our day or the last days, it is about the only people who will understand the book of Revelation are the people to whom these things happen. So, I mean, you know, just take the book, man, put it up on the shelf. You're done with it. According to that, he's a dear pastor and an educated man, but I think he messed up there. Y'all seen that new book by Phil Jackson, the uh, basketball coach of uh, L.A. Lakers? Or he, he's not now, is he? He resigned last season. And the name of the book is The Last Season. And something, uh, how we came apart or something, I don't know. But I remember the first part, the last season. I thought, that's not the last season. That's his last season. <laughs> but you know how we, we so tend to make everything about us. If we're going to die in our generation, that has to be the last age. Everybody's got to go when we go. We want to make sure that the world ends when I die. <laughs> so we develop a theology to ensure it. <laughs> okay, is it just me or... Okay. The word shortly then means shortly. And I don't think we can wiggle out of that. Now, here's the thing. If he's showing them things that are going to happen shortly, then what things happened after 96 A.D.? Nothing. There are no events after 96 A.D. But what happened after 66 A.D.? Everything. All hell broke loose. Rome, for the first time, went into civil war. Jerusalem, which had Herod spent 80 years building the temple, he finished it in 62 A.D. Nero decreed that it be destroyed in 63 A.D. It was 50 years being built when Jesus was there. He said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. He said, we've rebuilt the temple over 50 years. How are you going to raise it up in three days? See, it had already been built. And they didn't finish till 62 A.D. So Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The Mosaic Law was finished. The civil wars of Rome and the persecution, the outbreak of intense persecution against the Christians. Now that's the historical background these things are going to happen shortly. And besides that, Revelation 1.9 says John is already in tribulation. You have to have a historical connection, see. You have to have something to plug into. So the internal evidence, look at chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things written, for the time is near. Now there's the words... In Gios. It's G I U O S, I believe it is. That's close enough. In Gios. And this means at hand or at your arm. Gios is the word for the crook in your arm. It's as close as the crook in your arm. Very close. This is used, for example, when Jesus was describing his crucifixion in the chapter before it happened. He said in Matthew 26 18, My time is at hand. He meant it was very close. Now, you can't just say, well, I don't believe that. It's the Bible. It's the Bible. And you can't fight something with nothing. 
You have to have some better exposition, definition, Bible dictionary, scriptural study, and then you follow the truth of Scripture wherever it leads you. You follow that truth wherever it leads you. Look at uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. I'm giving you some time references here. Revelation 2, verse 5. Remember from whence you have fallen and repent and do the things you did at first, or else I will come to you and remove your lampstand out of its place. This is chapter 2, verse 1, the church in Ephesus. Now, did Jesus do that to that church? You know where Ephesus is? It's in modern-day Turkey. Now, I have read, and I understand that there is not one church in Turkey. That when the Pope went to Turkey two or three years ago, he was not even permitted to say Mass. It's a Muslim country. He was not permitted to say Mass to the individual Christians who had gathered. There are Christians, but there are no churches. So Jesus said, I will come to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. They didn't repent, and he came to them and removed it. Now that is historical, see. That's why I say to you, Jesus can come now. He may not come on a white horse literally, but he comes in the events of history. He can come in a heart attack. He can come in a sudden death. He can come in the loss of a job. He can come in a church vote. He can come in a judgment and remove the lampstand. And what we have to do is recognize that Jesus is active in history. See, he comes. When he told his disciples in John 14, he said, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Was he talking about the second coming? No. Haven't you ever had Jesus come to you in comfort, at a funeral, or in a time of trial? He comes. They are the ministers of God, the deacons of God, Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. They are the instruments of God for your good. God uses them as instruments. When a policeman pulls us over, Jesus has come. So roll your window down and say, it's a second coming, glory to God. (laughs) But let me just show you this. Go over to Leviticus 26. Leviticus, the Old Testament, Leviticus, because you know Revelation is the most Old Testament book in the New Testament. And that's why it's difficult for us because... When's the last time you read Leviticus? (laughs) Leviticus 26. This is God's covenant with his people. And he says in Leviticus 26, verse 14, If you do not obey me, verse 14, Leviticus 26, 14, Do not carry out all these commandments, and you reject my statutes, and your soul abhors my ordinances, so as not to carry out all my commandments, and so break my covenant, then in turn I will do this to you. I will appoint over you sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste the eyes and cause the soul to pine away, and you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you, and you will be struck down before your enemies. Now notice that. I will set my face against you, and you will be struck down before your enemies. You see the intermediary there? 
and those who hate you will rule. Verse 18, if after all these things you do not obey me, I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Chapter 26, 18. Verse 21, if then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among you the beasts of the field. You'll be bereaved of children. I'll destroy your cattle. Verse 23, and if by these things you are not turned to me but act with hostility, then I will act with hostility against you and I will strike you seven times for your sins. Now notice that, that repetition, seven times. Why seven? Well, when you took an oath, you literally, the word oath in the Hebrew is siva. It's where we get our word seven. And you are creating something. And that's why God, in seven days, he oathed a day. He sevened, when it says uses the word seven, he'll use the word siva for seven, oath. So because you're creating something. Now when God says, I will punish you seven times, he's saying, I'm going to uncreate it. I'm going to take the oath back. If you don't keep your side of the covenant, then I will cancel the siva, the oath. He's unbaptizing you seven times. So he's doing the sevens three times. You can count them there. There's one in uh, verse 18, one in 21, and then uh, one in uh, 24. And he comes back with seven times I will plague you, seven times I will judge you, seven more times if you're hostile to me. In other words, you'll want to keep the covenant. Otherwise, he will seven you. That is, bring the judgments of an oath, a broken oath, upon you. Now, when you look at the book of Revelation... What do you have? Well, in chapter 5 and 6, you've got this seven-fold document, which is a covenant. It's a covenant document. That's in chapter 5 and 6. He opens it up, and out come all these judgments, and there are seven seals which open up into seven trumpets which are also judgments, which open up into seven bowls of wrath. So the whole book of Revelation is about seven times judgment, seven more times, and then seven more times until finally the bowls, chapter 15, verse 1, is the judgment is finished. It's exhausted. The covenant curses are exhausted. And the old covenant is now undone. It is unoathed. It is now canceled. By the way, the new covenant is never canceled. It is an oath that God never takes back. He calls it in Hebrews 13, the everlasting covenant. Just for your comfort. So you don't afraid God will cancel it on you. And the old covenant was never meant to be permanent. But we'll stop right there, and I'm going to pick this up next time with the internal evidence of the 66 AD and how that the judgments that came on Jerusalem give us a paradigm for how God acts today and how someday He will act climactically when He comes again. He is the Lord who is and who was and who shall be.